Welcome to Care Under Fire. Today I am with Bernadette Sarong. Bernie has had a really extensive career as an army medic and now a general service officer. She's had operational experience in Afghanistan, Fiji, Iraq, and domestically in support of COVID and bushfire assistance ops. Welcome to the podcast, Bernie. Thank you very much, Em. Um, I'm honoured um, to be part of the podcast and thank you so much for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to share my experiences and all the things I've, I've done uh, throughout the last 22 years. Um, I will say up front that I am currently serving uh, in the Defence Force. Um, anything that I do say um, does not represent the views of Defence. I'm reflecting on my personal experiences as a clinician and subsequently as a general service officer within a medical corps. So I just wanted to put that up front and say that um, also uh, this recording has been cleared by Defence Media. Yeah, absolutely. We've had them and their tick of approval before we went ahead. And you've been such an inspiration to me over the years, I would say. So I'm, I'm really keen to hear about how it all started for you. Tell me about your younger years growing up and how you went at school. Oh, brilliant. Um, well, thank you for that, Em. Um, I've, I've certainly I've been inspired by you as well, so the feeling is mutual. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly felt safe uh, having you there in our ICU uh, in Iraq, knowing that if things went really bad, um, really badly, that that we would have you there to treat us and, and to treat our coalition partners. So, yeah, the feeling is mutual. Um, <laughs> so my my younger years growing up, the, t the two things that I would probably reflect on uh, my younger years were fun, uh, yet often chaotic. So I'm one of 11 children uh, born into a big, big Catholic family from Melbourne and I was the eighth child and, you know, mum was, mum was home with the children, uh, you know, um, uh, doing all the home duties and uh, dad was working and so um, he wasn't wasn't home a lot he was trying to obviously support the family so uh, when I say chaotic 11 children brings much chaos yeah um, yeah and um, two two of my siblings um, there's special needs as well so it was a big challenge for for my parents but yeah that was that was my my younger years how did I go at school? Well, uh, terribly, I would say. Or well, not terribly, but <laughs> I certainly wasn't uh, academic. I much preferred sport, um, loved being active. I did taekwondo um, at an international level and uh, that was in you know my, my high school years and into my, my early 20s. So I, I much preferred taekwondo and the training and the structure and the discipline. It, it brought that structure and discipline that I craved. How did your parents even get you to training with 11 kids? Oh, <laughs> like, that's incredible. That's the, that's, that's the thing that I, it just, my, it, it blows my mind when I think back because we all did extracurricular activities wow. every night of the week. So I actually don't know. Um, once my older brothers could drive, they often, you know, would drive us, uh, you know, the younger siblings to our sporting or drama or whatever musical instrument we were playing, but we all had something every night of the week. I'm not exaggerating. And the weekends were a joke. 
So, so when I say chaotic, I really mean it. <laughs> so what was your motivation to join the army? Did you have anyone in the family in the ADF? So, well, firstly, my motivation to join, I think it comes from a deep sense of adventure. And I think that's something perhaps it's just inherent. I, I had a sense, a strong sense that I wanted to contribute uh, to our great nation and I wanted to, to do something that was meaningful. And the Defence Force recruiting ads at the time, when I signed up, were very enticing. There was a lot of there was a lot of abseiling, a lot of rock climbing, a lot of whitewater rafting. I've done maybe one of those things in my in the last twenty two years, but my God, the the um, the advertisements um, they painted a very good picture. But, you know, I say that in jest. I, I've done a, a lot yeah. of fantastic things uh, within my time within Army. In terms of family, my, well, my, my biggest inspiration from a family perspective, my great uncle, Brigadier Ted Sarong, he was, he led the Australian Army training team Vietnam. Um, he was commanding officer of my current unit, Land Warfare Centre, and he had an extensive, very, very, um, successful career and so he was he was certainly uh, and still remains a, a very um a deep inspiration for my service my my grandfather my paternal grandfather was uh, in world war Two, um so he served in in new guinea in world war Two, and uh, my father did national service um mm. he was he was too young for world war Two and too old for vietnam so um he did national service in the 50s as a gunner so yeah that that's the the family sort of influence there so you joined in 2001 looking back on your medical ieds how did you find that initial training and you know you did you do sort of a bit of nursing stuff and a bit of uh, trauma stuff back then at the school Yes. Um, so when I joined and did, did my full-time IET, that was in 2003. So initially in 2001, I joined as a reservist and I just mm-hmm. did a, a two-week um, medic, uh, basic medic reserve module. You know, I loved the reserves and I couldn't get enough of, of serving. So I decided to join up full-time in 2003 and I went and did my basic medics course, which um, we refer to as BMAC. And that was nine months at, at uh, Latchford Barracks uh, in uh, Bonagilla in uh, near Wodonga. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the training uh, at the time was run by uh, a mixture of military instructors, so um, army medics, essentially, and there were some nursing officers there I believe at the time Um, but we had um, RMIT instructors as well so we got the trauma side from our military instructors and we got the nursing side from our RMIT instructors and in particular one stands out for me and that is uh, she's now Julie Hughes she married one of our now nursing officers was a medic at the time Sean Hughes Um, and yeah, at the time, though, she was Julie Watson, a nurse, midwife, and she she was an incredible mentor um, to me, still is, and she really taught us to, to respect our patients and uh, she taught us the concept of clinical conscience and you know that that only only we're going to know if we've made a mistake often often no one's watching but but our clinical conscience will tell us if it's right or wrong um to proceed yeah and you know just that the whole respect for the patient being the person you're treating this 
whilst it might not be your mother, uh, it's someone's mother. And that came back to me um, when I was treating an enemy combatant and um, many years later, and it really did resonate with me. So, yeah, yeah, I I had some incredible training uh, throughout my initial employment. Yeah, it's important to never forget that compassion and yes. the humanity side to what we do and not become a clinical robot, as I yeah. like to say. Yeah, yes. yeah, yes. So then you posted to a unit, come back to school, did your AMAC or your advanced course as well? Yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, my first posting was to Oki. So essentially it was into a, like a corporal's position or clinical position because we were straight on to the flying roster as a rotary wing uh, medic. Um, so when I left my IET, instead of marching into my new unit, I went straight on my rotary wing AME course, much to the uh, disgust of many of the senior medics that were on that course. Looking back, you know, we did that course um, in the uh, Iroquois, so the Huey, um, before it was decommissioned. So it was it was actually really special. And, um, yeah, we did that out at uh, Oki, um, at the um, Army Aviation Training Centre out there. So, yeah, really enjoyed my first posting. That was to Oki Medical Centre and then 173 Surveillance Squadron, which was when Army still had a fixed wing uh, capability. So I had some, uh, yeah, really important um time there uh, as my first postings uh, as a medic pretty cool job yeah it was very cool I mean obviously we're kind of in a bit of a training mode at that era although Iraq was ramping up did you do any sort of live AME jobs in that initial period um not in the initial period we did lots of training drills um I was fortunate enough to deploy over to uh, Papua New Guinea on exercise and we did some high density altitude training in the Blackhawks and throughout Garoka and I I got to work at the Medang um, General Hospital and saw a lot of trauma there from machetes and uh, got to do a lot of suturing and um, you know really practice some skills uh, as as a medic Um, so you know I had some good opportunities there even though we didn't have any actual uh, AMEs. Yeah. And then I guess fast forward a few years, 2011, you deployed to Afghanistan with two RAR on MTF3. Yes, yes. Um, That was, you know, and they say, you know, an operational deployment, um, particularly to, you know, a warlike zone is it's the culmination of all of your training and really often the pinnacle for someone's service or someone's career. So this was the first time that I'd, I'd been tested as a medic, I would say. We, you know, you do all the pre-deployment training and everything like that and you put through your paces and you're very much tested uh, from a clinical perspective to make sure you're ready to go and that you're competent and current with what you're going to be required to do when you receive a trauma casualty. But um, actually having that trauma casualty in front of you that's not a simulated casualty, of course, um, the first time that happens is uh, extremely confronting, but you just uh, rely on your training and and you go forth Mm. yeah i agree like no amount of suicides or car accidents in australia could have prepared me for my first ied casualty i don't think the level of trauma is just unbelievable yeah it's yes it's incredible that some people can still have a have a pulse 
really yes <laughs> with how injured oh. they are <laughs> like yeah and and it's only for the work of really great medics on the ground that that happens so yeah yeah so you found that lead up training your mission readiness exercise your certification all the counter ied stuff t triple c do you find all that really prepared you for for hitting the ground or as you say it's still shocking it it was shocking but i would say that the lead up training that we were provided was excellent in particular i recall some lead up certification exercises that were uh, conducted from a clinical perspective by care flight um, yeah. and that that happened at um, Laverack barracks in townsville um, we had some uh, very experienced uh, care flight uh, paramedics and doctors that came in and they constructed some very real life uh, mass casualty scenarios. The moulage, uh, they had actors that came in that were actual um, amputees. So when their you know, stump uh, was, was moulage, it was lifelike to us yeah. and the, the realism was there and it really did assist us with going through uh, our treatment, our casualty treatment regimes and what it did do, uh, which was the most important part, was that when I was faced with a, an actual mass CAS in Afghanistan, it gave me a point of reference. So when I saw the mass CAS, and we had many, um, in, once we were deployed, my mind instantly went back to the scene that I'd been provided earlier on my pre-deployment training that was uh, provided to us by CareFlight. So that training, the realism of the training and the feedback that we got from that training from a clinical perspective was second to none. Yeah. So talk me through um, what your job involved in the role to ECHO as a research sergeant. What were sure. you responsible yes. for? And what, you know, yeah. I sort of have an idea, but some of the listeners yes. might not. So a bit of context. Yes. Yeah. yeah, of course. So we, we all had, you know, defined roles within the resuscitation team. So so we worked in these what we call resus bays or trauma bays. At Tarrancourt, we were working within a US Navy Role 2 ECHO facility. So we were invited to work within the resus bay. We were there on a rotational system. We weren't assigned to resus every day. We would we would run our own role one, which is like a primary healthcare mm -hmm. um, clinic type thing. Um, we'd run that every day for, for our contingent or for our uh, Australian force and also those who were eligible for treatment, so our interpreters and things like that. But on a few days a week, we were on a roster to to staff the, the resus uh, bays there. So our team uh, was constructed or, or consisted of a medical officer, um, a nursing officer, and then uh, we had several medics, but uh, we had a warrant officer class two medic or a WOMED, uh, myself as the med sergeant, and then we had um, several corporal medics. And later on in, in the rotation, uh, we had a, a couple of private medics um, that worked with us as well that were brought in from uh, Al Minhad um, because many of our very, uh, you know, very sadly, um, 
some of our medics were injured, uh, received uh, traumatic injuries and were returned to Australia. So they were re were replaced yeah. and we had some brought in from Al Minhad. So, yeah, our team did, uh, it evolved. We did a lot of work together in the pre-deployment phase um, to get to a level, a, a competent level. And, um, yeah, within the resus team, um, you know, I was the medic, obviously, uh, the sergeant medic. So, you know, I would, of course, within Army, there's a, a hierarchical system and, you know, I I would report from a medic perspective to the WOMED. But from the medic perspective, we actually constructed our resus team. We, we adapted it slightly to the US, uh, the US model, which we learned when we got there from the US medics and the US Navy that were working uh, within this facility. And they referred to a wet medic and a dry medic. So yeah. The, the wet medic does all the uh, the invasive procedures or the, um, you know, you know straight away would get um, cannulas in and, you know, do all, all the invasive procedures that, that were required at the time, whereas uh, the dry medic's on the other side and is, you know, attaching leads and, you know, doing all the diagnostic uh, things and the things that, that aren't the invasive mm -hmm. uh, type procedures. But, you know, working in tandem um, and... We had a scribe, which was another medic, and each each resus we would rotate these positions so everyone, you know, remained current and obviously um, we could share the, the workload as well. So, yeah, the three positions for the medics there, um, scribe, wet medic, dry medic, mm. and then we had the nursing officer uh, at airway and um, the medical officer would be at the foot of the bed. We actually had a, a line that we, we drew on the ground and the medical officer would not step over that line. Um, so so he could, he, I say he, because both our medical officers were male, um, so he could intervene if if an invasive procedure was beyond the scope of the nursing officer. So, and yeah, the medical officer would remain behind the line uh, to, to be able to, direct the resus and to to get a good appreciation of of everything that was happening uh, rather than uh, becoming hyper focused on a particular intervention mm -hmm. so uh, it, that system really did work for us and we became very well versed in that throughout the deployment but i will i would just like to quickly go back to um, the things that we learned during the pre-deployment training that that were crucial for us. So the first one I would say would be team cohesion and any advice that I can give would be if someone is, is working towards a deployment or going away with a team where they're going to be receiving a lot of casualties, uh, my, my strong advice would be work on your team cohesion as much as you do your clinical skills or your resource drills, um, uh, team cohesion. If you can't work together, it doesn't matter how good your clinical skills are. You re you really need to be able to communicate. Yeah. Um, we learned we learned the importance of the communication feedback loop, and we we became very well practiced in that. So, you know, giving a, a drug order, confirming the drug order, and then uh, whoever had ordered that drug order, confirming that that had been delivered, it really did assist with obviously with, with treatment and the progression of the treatment and to stabilise the casualty. The other thing that, of course, it assisted was the poor scribe who is there frantically trying to record everything. Our communication and our feedback loop with communication, uh, I thought, was a well-honed skill by the end. 
The other thing that we did was we we had first name basis in the resus bay. Uh, there's no point saying sir when the doctor's a captain and the WOMED is is male um, because many the medics saying sir and everyone else saying sir. Three people turn around and you know you've got a surgeon there who also you know is required to be called sir in a military context and an anaesthetist and and everyone else. So if you say sir. Yeah, sir or ma'am doesn't work. And um, we, we made it very clear early on that all the, the rule was it's first name basis when you step into the resus bay and it just assists that communication and, and clarity, I suppose. And I think it helps invite feedback too. Like if you're you're running that resus but you've missed something, you know, you don't need a rank yes. relationship in the way because everyone's got their skill set and they can turn around and say, Hey, we, yes. we haven't done this. Or... Yes, and that—that's that. Absolutely, that. Um, and that brings me to a point that they taught us in there. All the, you know, the doctors and nurses leading up to the deployment taught us the importance of uh, the medics feeling empowered to speak up if they notice that there's something uh, clinically mm. clinically awry that or no one has picked up on. Just because you're the most junior clinician there doesn't mean that you shouldn't speak up um, at the at the patient is is at the pinnacle of everything that we do, um, and so uh, you know preserving preserving their life is is uh, what what we're all aiming for. So we actually came up with something, and um, the doctor came up with this actually, Doctor Nick Gray. He said, "This is the line that if you say this, I will I will stop everything that I'm doing." And I will pay attention to what you're saying. So, so be very careful when you use it. But it was, it mm. was to empower the medics to speak up uh, if they thought something was wrong. And and that was, sir, you must listen. And so, you know, in a military context, you don't normally talk to an officer like that. Um, so when when saying that, we'd we'd practice this um, before deploying. So again, if if you are working with a team, work out these mm. um, these these words um, and all these phrases before you go because obviously when um, you're in the heat of the moment you're going to have to draw, draw on this training um, yeah yeah and looking back at the mtf3 trauma diary you guys just had a constant flow of presentations i think your first patient there serial one was an ana versus ied with blast injuries to the lower limbs and end up dying but it just went on from there, didn't it? IEDs, gunshot wounds. Yes. Electrocution. Yeah, MVAs, traumatic brain injuries, limb fractures, eye avulsions, facial injuries, pelvic fractures, right through to, you know, a four-year-old with burns. How did you, I guess, cope with that volume of trauma at the time when you're seeing oh. that? on such a frequent intense basis yes I, I learned a lot about myself em actually i um first first thing i had to do was uh, record it so i i kept a trauma diary and i my trauma diary was was a spreadsheet and you know just detailed uh, the demographics and uh, the category of the casualty. So we used, um, mm. you know, Cat Alpha Bravo Charlie, which in Australia we normally use priority one, two, and three, um, which is their priority for evacuation based on the severity of their injuries. And I listed their their injuries and then what the plan was for them. So where were they being? You know, were they going to their operating theatre? Were they um, going to 
uh, Kandahar airfield to the Roll 3, were they being uh, returned or repatriated to Australia or what, what was the outcome for them? So that really did assist me with processing the trauma. And so if you know, you've had a long day or a long night or both within the trauma bay, I would then when I was um, you know, finally able to um, to go back to my accommodation, uh, the first thing I would do was go to the trauma diary and just enter in what had occurred. And for me, it was like I was trying to catalogue it in my mind. And that, I think, was the first, the first part of me trying to process the trauma. But in saying that, um, some of the traumas were so impactful that I didn't process them. And uh, unfortunately, some of those memories, um, sorry. It's okay. Some of, some of those memories um, involuntarily have come back um, through uh, a visual hallucinations and, you know, what, what we might term as flashbacks, particularly for um, having to treat Australian casualties um, that were friends, mentors, colleagues. And, um, yeah, those those memories were never filed correctly for me. Yeah, they are... Uh, yeah. Hmm. Sorry. Take a minute. Yeah. You're right. Um, yeah, so that's that's been a, a really difficult part. Um, Ten years after treating a very close friend of mine, Sergeant Makuti Quirk, NSC retired, also known as Coco, after treating him, actually, you know, I've had some ex exposure therapy and lots of therapy to try and file those memories correctly. But um, throughout the process of having some exposure therapy, I actually recalled being in the resus bay and treating Coco and thinking to myself, this is really, really difficult, but you must keep going, you must do your job. And I remembered thinking, I'm gonna put these memories on the top shelf. And the top shelf was the top shelf of the resus bay. And I thought to myself, I'm gonna deal with them later, but I must keep going now. And in order to do that, I have to put these memories aside for a second. Uh, yeah, so so yeah. I did that, and um, ten years later, they uh, they came back at me. I could only remember snippets of of the resus, and some of those things came back to me ten years later. So um, yeah, it's yeah, it, it's to cope with the volume of trauma. At the time when I said I learned a lot about about myself, what I learned was in the heat of the moment, I could push through. But then I have a 12-hour 12, 12 delay switch for my, my emotions and how I process the trauma. So that, that 12 hours usually was long enough for me to be somewhere quiet um, where I could reflect and just have an emotional letdown and just let it all out. Sometimes I screamed, sometimes I cried, but just had that emotional release. But yeah, it was an important lesson for me, which I hadn't learned until that time, was that I've got 12 hours between, you know, flash to bang once I'm, I'm treating the casualty or casualties and then 12 hours later, that's when um, it'll hit me. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's really good you share that because everyone's different and yes. also that 
it can come back at you years and years later where you think you're doing okay but then it just hits you like a ton of bricks sometimes so it's you know a normal response to what was a very abnormal place yes yeah yes I I would agree absolutely Hmm. take me back to Coco I mean I know that um you've you've touch base with him and and check that he's happy for you to talk about his injuries and he's also recently quite openly talked about them I think he's working on a book as well but Coco was injured when his vehicle was hit by an IED and he was ejected and you received another Australian casualty from the same incident as well that day take me back to when you kind of got that call to resus did you know it was him initially or sure yeah well yeah 13th of august 2011 um yeah my very close close friend coco um who was my colleague i worked alongside him uh, in townsville we were uh, medic sergeants together we literally worked next to each other so sat side by side um as platoon sergeants and same rank, same job. And, you know, Coco was a very experienced medic from a, a trauma perspective. He'd been to Iraq. He'd had lots of very serious trauma casualties. He was, you know, very close friends. You know, I, you know, I know his wife, Tam, and his children. And, yeah, he was a real mentor to me. So, you know, when things would go wrong, um, he was at a patrol base. I was in Tarrant I would call him and just to get some advice as to what I should be doing. And, yeah, it, it, that's why this, this particular day and this incident. It's all right, Bernie. Take your time. <laughs> Sorry. That's why this one is very tough for me um, in terms of the memory because it's I'm a very visual person and the memory of this day is it's a scar on my brain and when I access this memory the scar is opened and um, yeah, the tears, that's like a hemorrhage for me. And it's um, it just depends on um, how I access that, that memory, if it's an involuntary thing or if I'm questioned about it or um, if something reminds me of it um, as to how severe that hemorrhage of tears will be. So please bear with me. Um, yeah, it is. A, it's very tough. Yeah, and personal. So I really appreciate you. <laughs> being willing to talk about it yeah no thanks Sam um but yeah the, the the best part about this resus was that it has a positive outcome Coco's still here and uh he's incredible um I did get to speak to him yesterday um for, for a long time and I do have his blessing to to speak about the injuries uh, in detail and the incident so um I do thank Coco for that but yeah, when we got the call, um, we, we wore pages, so pretty old school, but we wore pages. So um, when a casualty was coming in and we were required in the resus bay, we'd receive a page and it sounds like last century, but we'd receive a page, um, you know, all all uh, resus team report to the, to the role too. So we got the page and 
I walked into the resus bay and uh, the nurse, the nursing officer, who was Lieutenant Kylie Hassey at the time, now Lieutenant Colonel, well done, mm. ma'am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so at, at the time, and and she said, uh, Bernie, shut the door. And, uh, you know, the, the, the resus team had, had been assembled and, um, and she said, we've got one uh, Cat Alpha Australian, so Priority One Australian, Cat Alpha Australian. And it's quirky. So quirky is Coco, that's Sergeant McCulty quirk. And I think I probably, um, you know, I was in shock and, uh, you know, everyone was in shock. As I understand it, one of our medics, um, Jackie Harris, is now Jackie Anderson, um, she went outside and she vomited um, when she heard that. Yeah. But, yeah, so really, really confronting for us that one of our mates, very close mate, you know, medic, Sergeant Medic, who has, you know, been working out the patrol base, um, that he had been involved in an IED incident and um, that he was he was very unwell and um, he was a cat alpha. But, yeah, that, that list of injuries, of course, was really confronting when this is a person that, um, it, you know, is so close to you. So it's... Um, yeah, it was it was a very very difficult resource and a, a very difficult day. Yeah, mm. I guess the key distinction between civilian and military practice is that often in a civil hospital, you'll not be treating someone you know, and if you do, it's unlikely to be that serious. But here you are with someone you've shared an office with and known really well as a friend, known their family, and you're really good mates and you're part of the team responsible for his resuscitation, which was really, uh, as you said, a really well-oiled team that worked well to save his life. Um, Yeah, but incredibly tough because you're in a war zone and you don't have the luxury of time to process and time to even sort of grieve that or, yeah. Yes. It's huge. Yes, and... Yeah, it, it was. And that that's yeah, that's a, a great summary, Em, because um yeah, it was a lot to process. But what I will say is that I didn't from our pre deployment training, we were told to consider what it would be like or asked to consider what it would be like to treat some treat a casualty in an Australian uniform. Um, so we considered that and, oh, that's going to be tough. That's going to hurt. It's, it's one of our, mm. you know, this is one of our, our brothers or sisters. It's coming through. Uh, they've got Australian uniform on. It's going to be really tough. Um, they said, consider you're treating children, you're tre- treating the, el- um, the elderly, you're treating, you know, coalition partners, things like that. Think about what it will be like to treat enemy combatants. How confronting is that going to be? But they never said to us, consider treating one of your mates. Mm. And so when I look back, when, and when I subsequently trained combat first aiders and army first aiders and, and pathers and things, I would always say that, consider what it's like that this person is your mate, your really close friend, because you may just need to push through. And I suppose for anyone listening to this podcast, I think this might be similar if you're working in a rural or remote setting whereby you know the members in the community, you're, you're, you're close, it's only a small group or a small population there. Um, you might be on a mine site um, yeah. or, you know, a remote posting somewhere, um, Antarctica perhaps, and you know everyone really well. 
when someone gets injured, particularly if their injuries are like, you know, catastrophic, it's going to be super confronting because you already have that connection with that person. So yeah, my, my heart goes out to you. And I just say, just, just keep pushing through yeah. and uh, seek, seek assistance when you need mm. it from a mental health perspective. Yeah. Mm. Remember your training at the time, but then you've really got to unpack that, don't you, at some point? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I would just say the trauma diary that you started over there, that continued for another four, um, possibly five rotations, although I haven't seen it beyond the fourth. And it really helped us in 2012 going into country because you hear stuff in bits and pieces, but to have a definitive list of these were the casualties of the treatment that was able to be provided in that setting, knowing you were walking into the same hospital to do that um, that job it was really helpful yeah. in terms of preparation <laughs> so That's um That's yeah and, yeah and it's helpful looking back to remember too but it yeah. is it is yeah. it's I'm, I'm glad that that was shared at the time I did when I returned to Australia I did share it with army headquarters yeah. um for, for that and to inform the pre-deployment training serials um of of those preparing to go into country so I'm really glad that that worked mm. and um yeah thank you for the feedback so Coco had obviously been ejected from the vehicle and from that blast did he have a traumatic brain injury and was he conscious and talking to you when he arrived yeah, fortunately, when Coco got to the resus bay, he was he was sitting up and he was talking to us and he was responding appropriately. Um, but I do know from, you know, Coco's recordings and things, uh, things that he has documented and feedback that he's gotten from the AFAs and the CFAs and medic that treated him that he was actually nil signs of life at point of injury. And the AFAs and CFAs and medic did fantastic work. Uh, teamwork was really at the heart of everything they did. Um, they worked exceptionally well and put all their training into practice and put tourniquets on and, you know, uh, arrested the hemorrhages, multiple hemorrhages and got fluids in. And, yeah, so when Coco got to us, he was talking, responding appropriately to us, so which Incredible. was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So how did that resus unfold yeah, okay. So, um, you know, Coco was brought in and, as I said, he was conscious. He was talking to us, which was a huge relief. Um, but, you know, we were about to discover just the enormity of his injuries, uh, of which he had many. But I suppose what I want to convey and is the concept of distracting injuries. So, you know, through, throughout my training, I'd been taught about distracting injuries and when someone has got something that, you know, there's a lot of blood or, you know, bones exposed or, or what have you. It, it, it can be exactly that, as the name implies, distracting. The issue that we had with Coco was that there were three distracting injuries and they were right in front of me. So I had, uh, you know, I was the wet medic, so I did all the invasive procedures, which is super difficult when, you know, it's your one of your best mates. Mm. your mentor and very very close colleague so on Coco's right side he had an open fracture of the anterior hand an open whereby all of the bones were visible they're all on view and the orthopedic surgeon uh, was at US Navy 
And he he came in very quickly to the recess bay and rather than waiting in the operating theatre, you know, ready to receive Coco in there, he got to work straight away in the recess bay whilst we were stabilising him. So he pulled out what I can, I've never seen this before and, and you may know what it, what it is, but to me it looked like a crochet hook, um, like a knitting needle type thing and he was realigning the bones in Coco's hand whilst we were resussing him and because I think he could see that he was going to be really busy uh, with this casualty in, in theatre and there's only one orthopaedic surgeon there. So he was realigning the bones in Coco's hand and and I had no point of reference for that. I, I'd never seen anything like it. The fact that he could do that whilst Coco was talking, um, it really, it, it was... It was surreal, to say mm. the least. Um, so that was one of the distracting injuries. Coco had a lot of medication on board by this stage. So, you know, he's a big man, really tall man, and, you know, morphine, midazolam, fentanyl, ketamine, a lot of ketamine, you know, particularly for the amnesic effect. And so, you know, trying not to get distracted by the right hand, left elbow, so distal humerus, um, open fracture, you know, very messy. And also his left femur was, was completely shattered and open. Mm. So we think that Coco took the majority of the impact on his left side because he had obviously open left elbow, open left femur and, you know, big contusion of his left eye. So, yeah, Em, your, your question earlier about um, traumatic brain injury probably, you know, because he, he did impact his head, uh, mm. you know, yeah, massive contusion and, yeah, but he, he was sort of in and out of consciousness with us, you know, probably due to the effects of the blast and the medication that was sort of on board so we could treat him and stabilise him and get him into theatre as quickly as possible because that's that's where he needed to be. Whilst we were going through our treatment, you know, our, our primary survey, when, Co- when Coco was conscious, he was telling us what to do because, of course, he taught many of us. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's really important to keep talking to your patient. Um, sometimes they'll talk back, and it sort of it really helped us as a team. You know, we have a we had a fantastic resus team. We trained so hard together, and now we were two months into our rotation, and so we we're starting to really work well together. And thank God um, we did because yeah, it was a positive outcome treating Coco. But anyways, we're doing our primary survey and, you know, very quickly we knew we had to log roll, um, you know, spinal precautions, log roll cocoa and check uh, posterior for any uh, injuries, you know, any bleeds or whatever and check spinal alignment. And, oh, yeah, this is the, this is the tough bit. So um, we log rolled him and... Um, was 10 years later when that memory came back to me because when we log rolled him Coco was screaming so despite all the medication that he had on board you know log rolling someone who has that many shattered bones it's going to be painful but of course we needed to check he didn't have a slow bleed on the back or any other injury that we'd missed Um, obviously a primary survey is the entire body surface so you know, was necessary, but in treating him, we caused him pain. And that that was really hard. But 10 years after Coco's recess, I was driving down the road. Um, I'd left work. I was driving down the road and I looked down at my hands 
for, for whatever reason. And I, what I saw was not what should have been there. And um, I was wearing blue nitrile gloves and I had white powder, a white powdery substance on my hands. And I was thinking, oh, this is weird. No, this can't be real. I had remembered it was it well, it was a visual hallucination, and I'd remembered in that moment ten years later that when I'd rolled Coco, I actually the white powder was actually his disintegrating femur on my on my gloves. Mm. So yeah, that was that was a tough one, and I've learned since that day what a moral injury is. So a medic is called to do two things primarily two things do no harm to the patient and improve the outcome for that patient so yes a medic prevents deterioration and all those things but at the end of the day you do no harm and you improve the outcome for that patient so he was a positive outcome that resus and um, you know we continued with the primary survey and we worked very swiftly and um, we got him into theatre you know, in good time. So uh, the surgeon went in and put in a lot of plates and pins uh, to save Coco's left leg along his femur, which had shattered. And yeah, he, he's uh, he's got all four limbs, which is great. Um, so it's it is a, a good outcome. Yeah, that's um that's pretty epic though. Like for it to come back and just hit you at that random time when you're least expecting it driving home from work and and you're facing that yes so yeah. your bravery in talking about this and and sharing that is just incredible burning and yeah and just know that you guys did a great job and coco's living proof of it thanks um yeah when it's it is it's wonderful to talk to him and we catch up got his blessing to share yeah. the story of treating him and the honour of treating him and um, he's doing really well. He and Tam and his beautiful children are, are doing exceptionally well. So it is a good outcome. And I guess the other big kind of distractor in that resource is any time there's an Australian hurt, there's always a big request for information. You know, they want to know the prognosis pretty quickly and there's a lot of people uh, fighting for updates, I guess, so that they can feed that back up to command and, and, you know, and all the way back to Australia and to the family. But I know this one was a little bit unconventional in that you had Tam on the phone throughout that as well. So how was that trying to talk to her and do your job? That Yeah, that was super hard because, um, you know, we, we all know Coco's wife, Tam, Tam was a medic and, um, you know, deployed to Timor and, you know, exceptional woman. And, you know, we all know Tam really well. And when we deployed, she was actually working at the health centre. So we all had a relationship with Tam as well. And once we'd stabilised Coco, they, the doc got Tam on the phone just to let her know, look, you know, Coco's unwell, but but he's okay, you know, and, and we wanted Tam to talk to Coco. So, you know, I had a... a, a a quick you know brief chat to Tam and just said look you know he's um he he has some injuries but he's he's okay and you know it'd be really good for you to say hello to him and and she did and then before he went into surgery we got we got Tam on the phone again just to you know say um you know just a few words and, and make sure that you know they both could connect at that point um mm. 
Coco certainly had a big operation ahead of him and, and, and many to follow as well as, um, you know, lots of AMEs and things. So, you know, whilst it was good talking to Tam, it was also, you know, quite emotional. So we were just trying to, to put on a very positive and uh, brave face. And the other thing, yes, absolutely, there's a thirst for information. And, you know, I certainly know that, you know, our headquarters needs that information because they're the ones who are arranging the next AME asset to be there ready when, as soon as Coco is out of theatre, he was going to Kandahar for, for mm. further surgery. So, um, and then on, on to um, Germany, etc. So um, they're the ones that are trying to arrange all of that, which is, you know, trying to get a, um, an aircraft there ready to go. But I certainly now being a general service officer, I'm very conscious of letting the clinicians do uh, what they need to do. There's no point uh, transferring a dead casualty. So the, the most important thing is to stabilise that casualty. So just get out of the way, let them do that. Get an update, but don't be intrusive. And, mm. you know, and certainly uh, you only interrupt, you know, that those thought patterns and, and things if you're just there trying to get at that information. Just ensure that when you are trying to get that information as a commander, uh, ensure it's for the right reasons if it's going to inform evacuation or it's going to inform follow-on care, then absolutely. But if it's not, then then just get out of the way. Good advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess though treating Coco wasn't the only really tough day on your deployment, you also on 29th of October 2011, there was... Um, Another oh, a green on blue incident where a Rogaine A soldier opened fire on Australian troops during a routine parade. Yes. Yeah, the, the casualty numbers slightly differ because we actually, the initial call was for 10 uh, Cat Alpha Australians. Um, that's the first thing that we heard on the, you know, with, with the communications that came through from headquarters. Um, so, yeah, 10 Cat Alpha Australians, which getting that receiving that in and of itself was super confronting um, we knew we had a mass cas and we knew they were our own the other thing that we learned very early on with the communication before we saw any casualties was that two were nil signs of life and one was expectant at point of injury so that was super super difficult to process that whilst you know preparing ourselves for for resus and also setting up multiple areas to receive these casualties we, we had at MassCAS coming to us and to further complicate things if we need to have another dimension to this one is that one of those category alpha casualties was a medic of ours so private Daniel Payne at the time and he was actually um, he received a gunshot wound uh, to the tibial plateau and he applied his own tourniquet and dragged himself around and treated the casualties and evacuated the casualties and then was the last to be evacuated from that scene. So if you just pause and reflect on that, uh, you know, situation and the level of heroics. Next level, yeah. incredibly brave to push oh, push through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So Painey did. Yeah an exceptional job, um, you, yeah, the, the level of courage and, um, you know, 
just pushing aside his own pain and and the difficulties that he was having with his own mobility. He couldn't actually walk. He had to drag himself, but, you know, applying his own tourniquet, very, very painful, you know, whilst he was losing blood. And then to have the clarity of mind and thought to then continue treating and to instruct those around him to continue treating for the casualties. When the casualties arrived to us at the, at the resus bay, Dan Payne amongst them. So we didn't know um, for the duration of that day and throughout all of that treatment, we didn't know if Dan was one of the, the casualties that tragically um, had, was nil signs of life. So we didn't know if he'd gone um, directly to the morgue. We didn't know if he'd been uh, diverted to the um, FST, to the forward surgical team, which was a US facility on the flight line. We didn't know if he was, yeah, we, did, we just didn't know if he was dead or alive, to, to be honest. So, so that was super, super tough. Um, and similar to what we learned um, or what I personally learned uh, whilst treating Coco um, back in August was that you just need to park these things. You need to park the emotion, uh, put it up on the highest shelf that you can and access it later because um, you need to just keep pushing and uh, revert to your training and you need to keep treating and and that's precisely what we did um so we received uh, in the end uh, we received eight uh, cat alpha australians um, one of those was expectant um, so had injuries that were not compatible with life but was still um, still had signs of life um, but injuries had been determined to, to be non-compatible with life so non-compressible hemorrhage etc and we received uh, three Cat Bravo casualties. Um, two were Afghan National Army uh, gunshot wound uh, casualties and the other was a local national interpreter with a gunshot wound. So for treating all of these casualties, which of course it was a mass cas because uh, the number of casualties exceeded um, our capability of our facility in terms of staffing and equipment, we split our team. So we split our team and we split our team again into different areas and of course we um, got assistance from our coalition partners um, from a, a medical perspective. We also got uh, combat first aiders and pathers from an adjoining uh, Australian uh, contingent that was at Tarrancourt. They came over and assisted us within where we'd had to dissect our team and dissect our team again into, into treatment areas. So we set up the trauma bays. We had four trauma bays, so they continued to receive our, our cat alphas. We then established another area, which was overflow. Um, so overflow of the Cat Alphas, and then that, that also became Cat Bravos. And then out the front of the um, of the resource area in the, I suppose, the triage area, that was for, for any Cat Charlies. So any of the Cat Bravos that were downgraded uh, to Cat Charlie, that they, they were stabilized and treated just in the, in the front of the resource area, which was the, the triage area. So I was assigned to the overflow area as, as the med sergeant and, um, you know, I had the assistance of, of some of our medics and some of our CFAs and PAFAs um, that had come across um, from the other compound. And I had a Cat Alpha who was stabilised and, and downgraded to a Bravo um, and it was one of our one of our Australians um, who'd received a gunshot wound to the, the upper thigh. Uh, from a medial perspective, so quite close to the groin, mm. and which of course makes um, it difficult to treat uh, whilst uh, maintaining the, the tourniquet and making sure that the tourniquet hadn't been compromised and um, and things, and that it was still effective. So, 
it was just myself on airway, which uh, was a strange place for me to be um, as a sergeant medic. I would usually be on the side of the casualty when I'm in a resource situation, but I, because we dissected our team so many times um, to deal with the volume of casualties, I found myself at airway and I had one medic with me, a corporal medic. And, um, and so, yeah, we uh, stabilised uh, this casualty and then they were uh, transferred um, via AME to Kandahar Airfield and then repatriated to Australia. Yeah, it was mm. very busy and a very long day. And, of course, um, we tragically lost um, three of our brothers that day, which is... <laughs> it's okay. Sorry. Corporal Ashley Burt, Captain Bryce Duffy yeah. and Lance Corporal yeah. Luke Gavin yeah. were killed. Luke Gavin, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, may they rest in peace. And, um, yeah, it was very, very hard. And I'd actually spent the two weeks prior to this incident in a vehicle with Captain Bryce Duffy. So I'd gone out on a clearance mission um, out to Patrol Base Anaconda and... Um, yeah, in the back of the of my vehicle was Captain Bryce Duffy. So um, I actually knew him and, you know, often you deploy with a big contingent and you don't know everyone personally. But, um, yeah, for, for him to, yeah, he was one um, that we tragically lost on that day. So it's, um, yeah, it will certainly be etched into my psyche for, forevermore. But, of course, a positive outcome um, from that day is that, we were able to stabilise many and uh, evacuate many and, um, you know, for them for them to go on and, and lead, you know, prosperous and happy lives. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a tragic outcome for all of those who were injured that day. Yeah. How did you find your resources in a mass case like that? Did you <laughs> run out of blood? Yeah. Did you call in the walking oh. blood bank? Um, obviously yeah. you're splitting kit down and, and you know the roll two is pretty well stocked yeah. but it, it when yeah. when people are that badly injured you just you know you can use 30 or 40 units on one person sometimes just to try and keep them alive great great question em yeah resources obviously were stretched in the end we were working out of our med kits so whilst we'd stocked this overflow area where we ended up having you know, Alpha's downgraded to Bravo's and we actually had kit stocked on the walls and, you know, trauma packs and things, those roll bags. Um, yeah. But, yeah, in the end we, ha we had med kits there as well. So we were just rifling through med kits and, and having to use stores from there because there really wasn't time nor the people to, to be going and, you know, usually we, when we've got a resus going, if we need extra stores, we've got a runner. We've got run a runner or two runners mm. that would go out to the, the tricons or the, the containers and, and restock at, you know, in stride. But we didn't have that. Um, all our runners had been tasked. So, we yeah, we were just rifling through med kits by the end. Um, and, yeah, so that, that was hard. We didn't have you know it, where we were out in this this overflow area we didn't have walled ox oxygen or suction or anything like that so we were using you know mobile uh, units mm. um you know it, it was quite rudimentary and of course it, it it was like an outdoor sort of area as well like it wasn't um as sanitary as being in a, in a trauma bay so it, it was difficult yeah the dust is blowing in yeah and... the dust is blowing in and um it's it, it does become 
quite quite difficult uh, to to maintain um, yeah the the clinical standards that you want to maintain um, just because of the environment that you're in. Um, so yeah, that, that that was hard. And of course, recording you don't have a dedicated scribe. You're trying to record as you go. Uh, you know. Monitoring how many, how many um, drugs that you've administered, making sure you're recording that as you go, getting the drugs checked. You know, we've got obviously we've got different scopes. We had we had a nursing officer that had been brought in from an adjacent compound, and and she was fantastic, and she um, was you know assisting us with you know getting the medication to us, you know the S fours, S eights, things that we needed, um, and and trying to assist with yeah with recording as as we went because because we were so busy. In terms of you brought up um, the blood bank, so yes, we 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 prepared ourselves in the sense that. If we were in this situation and we did have um, pathology there so and um, we did have blood capability and some blood on hand but uh, very sadly one of our casualties required a lot of blood and um, i believe it was 18 units in the end so it, it yeah this the the blood stores were exhausted very quickly and um, we did open up a walk-in blood bank and that had been predetermined we had our list um, of suitable donors and they were called upon they very swiftly uh, made their way to uh, the roll two and yeah we, we opened up the blood bank so they um, they donated blood it went straight into um, the operating theater and yeah in an attempt um, to 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 save our our um, yeah our Australian soldier um, but yeah unfortunately it wasn't a good outcome. It's just incredible how adaptive and that innovation you need to use in in that environment particularly when you have that many more casualties so like just well done to everyone you know who just yes. turns up and, and does their very best yeah. yeah. Yes no absolutely and yeah I think the preparation for that day um, you know it was certainly yeah, months if not years in the making so yeah obviously ensuring that you have those procedures in place before um before you need them that's that's important um and being yeah. well well practiced um is certainly another thing hmm. yeah sometimes people are inclined to roll their eyes and say you know not another mass cas drill but there's never too many drills yeah. on the day that you actually have to do it live. Hey, like you, you want to know your, where you're going, what you're doing. And yeah, yes. otherwise the command and control and the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. Yes. Did um, the, the medic or Bainey, did he, did he get uh, recognised for his actions on that day? Oh, this is a contentious one. Yeah. And so um, he did get a commendation. I believe it was a, a silver commendation, which, uh, you know, those that deployed with him, so he was a private at the time, uh, he, w we thought it should have been at least um, a distinguished service cross for what he did. Yeah. But unfortunately, for, for whatever reason, and, you know, perhaps the, the accounts that were provided for, um, to support that award, that commendation, perhaps they didn't quite meet the threshold um, of a higher level award. But I know there is some work to review that. Um, I know Coco has done some excellent work with with trying to reinvigorate um, this to to get Daniel Payne recognised um, appropriately for. Uh, his heroic and his courageous service that day. Um, I think it's really important 
but yeah, he he received a silver commendation, but we think it should be a lot higher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, no no process is perfect. There'd be a lot of people walking around that you would never know what they've done, <laughs> and um, and yes. they and they wouldn't tell you either. But yeah, um, those that were there knew, and um, and we'll be forever grateful. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. What changed for you guys in the wake of that attack? in terms of treating Afghans and the security, uh, especially when you've got one of them that was a partner force turning on us. Okay, yes. Well, we'd actually had a few and we knew that uh, we knew that, that the frequency of these types of attacks um, was certainly increasing. So the US had had a number of attacks and we'd we'd actually had a couple, but you know certainly with not as as dire outcome as as the 29th of October 2011. So so we became more cautious. We became a lot more wary and uh, distrustful, I suppose, of of our partner force, which I suppose is a natural reaction to to what had just occurred. Yeah, it, it was difficult. It was really difficult. You know, there were um, people that didn't want to go out on patrol because they didn't, basically, they, they didn't want to get shot by the partner force, you know, being that, you know, a, an enemy combatant had infiltrated the partner force and, and would do that. So um, it was, yeah, it was quite terrifying. Um, we, within Tarankout, we changed our degree of weapon readiness. So we were no longer on load. We were, we were at action. So, so yeah, th things did change. Yeah, the, the atmospherics changed and certainly our level of trust changed. Uh, it shifted uh, rather, yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was difficult. By the following year when we were doing kind of our lead-up training in that, the green and blue threat, of course, had escalated further. We'd lost more Australians, unfortunately. And, and they, they got to the point of us doing like weapons drills on the range where you were simulated just sitting at a desk and then it'd be like target to your left fire and you'd have to get down on the knee and draw your nine mil out and engage because it was that environment of just not knowing where it's coming from. You're inside the wire, you're at a computer, for goodness sake, you know, or you're in a recess bay in what you would, you know, assume to be a relatively um, protected environment where there's layers of security. But, yeah, there, there was a huge emphasis on it in, in our lead up. Yes. But, yeah, really hard when you, you're trying to go out on patrol with these people and you're living with them day in, day out. Um, you got to have a bit of trust to have a mentoring relationship. But, yeah, really tough. Yes. Do you, how did you find treating the Taliban? Oh, that was, you know, I referred earlier to Julie Hughes and, um, you know, one of my mentors from my initial employment training and, um you know, she had taught us about, you know, this could be someone's mother, someone's father, someone's brother, etc. You treat everyone uh, with dignity and respect and, you know, really emphasise that clinical conscience part of, of when we're treating a casualty. Mm -hmm. um, 
this was one of my hardest challenges aside from treating Australians and treating my friends was that I had to treat enemy combatants and of course as signatories to the Geneva Convention the decisions made for us we don't we don't make that decision uh, we treat casualties based on the acuity of their injuries and their priority for evacuation so regardless of uh, their nationality or their their political affiliation or or you know what side um, of the war that they are on um, so having enemy combatants uh, that I had to treat both inside and outside the wire it was really difficult um, one in particular and I believe it was the first one that I had to treat was in the re in a resus scenario and I'd never seen any anyone like this person and I, it was, yeah, it was so confronting and it was shortly after um, Coco had been IED'd. So I had a lot of hatred towards this person. I, and, and I'm, I am ashamed to say it, um, but I, I wanted to hurt him. I really wanted to hurt him. And, um, I, you know, I had a cannula and I wanted to stick it through his arm. Um, but of course, Julie Hughes, her words came back to me at that moment, this is someone's father, someone's brother, someone's son, someone's uncle, and you treat this person with dignity and respect. And of course I did. And um, you know, that, that, that patient was stabilized and, and was evacuated like any other casualty, but it doesn't, it doesn't change the emotion uh, that you have, the flood of emotion, um, particularly after Australians had been, you know, killed and, and very badly wounded uh, as a result of uh, these enemy combatants. So, yeah, it was, it was quite, yeah, it was, yeah, it was so confronting um, to, to say the least. And just to have that that conflict going on whilst you're trying to make good clinical decisions was was difficult yeah they look at you with a hatred in their eyes like none other while you're there resuscitating them it's um yes but you know you've got to be the yes. bigger person at the end yes. of the day and deal with what's in front of yes. you yes yeah well i was i i completely agree that the only good thing that i I had going for me in this recess was that the casualty was unconscious and his eyelids were taped mm. shut because he was he was ventilated so that was a good thing i didn't have the interaction with him um but my my hatred was no no less yeah um so i really needed to to push those emotions aside and just press on and and, and do the job that i was employed to do yeah and uh, you know a lot of people probably don't realize we're not just in a health role and particularly more so for the medics like you'd be out on patrol in sort of a combat yes. setting one second firing at people and the next treating them it's pretty hard to flick that switch from yeah enemy to patient yes yes absolutely and it, it, yeah that that was certainly um something that i struggled with in that yeah you when when you're out when you're outside the wire absolutely and from you know from a medics are classed as, as non-combatants but when you're out there you can absolutely engage in self-defense um, whether it's in defense of yourself or our equipment or our casualties so you know if you if you are working outside the wire then that's that's the mindset that you need to take but when you're inside the treatment bay or inside the resus bay 
it is very difficult to switch to that mentality where, you know, when you've got an enemy mm. combatant in front of you, you, you do feel, you know, like you want to defend yourself, you want to defend the other casualties that they've probably caused that are around you. Um, and it's, it is, it, yeah, it, it's quite a, a position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And just because we're signatories to the Geneva Convention doesn't mean they are. And they saw that Red Cross, Red Crescent as a great big target. So, yeah. Yeah. Well done for pushing through. Thank you. What do you think were our biggest medical lessons learned or medical advances from Afghanistan? Sure. Um, from a, From an immediate you know, change as opposed to our processes within a resus team. So from a medic perspective, we, I, I did um, refer to it earlier in terms of the wet medic, dry medic. We, we weren't yeah. constructed that way or we weren't assembled that way going into theatre. And we certainly did change that, you know, during the deployment. And then that was brought back to the Army School of Health uh, to teach, uh, you know, new medic when they were going through their training that this was a really effective system but in terms of of trauma casualties more broadly i did certainly read that trauma casualties and the time from point of injury to damage control surgery i know the evacuation time plays a big part on the survivability of those casualties and there were many papers written often by us surgeons that were working at kandahar within the role 3 they looked at the survivability rates of, of the trauma casualties from Afghanistan over a long period of time. And of course, they determined that, you know, the shorter the evacuation time and the treatment applied at certain key points throughout that evacuation improved the survivability for those casualties. So when I hear things like the 10-1-2, the 10, 10 minutes to a medic, the one hour to M, uh, medical officer led resuscitation and the two hours to damage control surgery, when I hear commanders say things like, that's just a guide and we're not in Afghanistan anymore, I, I say, let's look at the reason that that's a guide. It's a guide because it improves the survivability of casualties and that has taken from data over 13 years of trauma casualties. So we won't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We'll actually look at that. And we will consider that evacuation timeline when we're planning for operations and exercises. Absolutely. How did you feel coming home? Coming home, of course, I was super excited to come home. Uh, you know, my daughter was, was five years old when I left, um, my beautiful girl, Mia Valerie. But, yeah, coming, coming home was really confronting. So I, you know, I had all those usual symptoms of, not wanting to be in crowded places and, you know, shopping centres would send me off the charts and multi-storey car parks, etc. I um, I was still in fight or flight or had very, very heightened uh, awareness of, of my surroundings. And I, I suppose I kind of fell into that which is which is often or quite common with those returning from warlike services. You know, when people would complain about things back in, the safety and the comfort of Australia, relative comfort of Australia, you know, I would fall into that nasty trap of comparing it to where I'd been and thinking and dismissing their complaints and thinking, well, you've got nothing to complain about. I've just been in, in a place that I would refer to as hell. So 
you know, and, and that comes down to, that came down to a lack of adjustment and a lack of compassion from my perspective, I believe. Um, and certainly, you know, if my daughter complained about something and I thought it was, um, you know, it didn't warrant that level of complaint, I was probably a bit intolerant, I would say, and I needed to adjust my worldview back to back to Australia. And, and this, this is an incredible country. And I, I know that circumstances are very different for different people here. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be naive in, in that. But, um, you know, I've certainly been to places in the world where, you know, water is not available, readily available. And, you know, there isn't electricity available. And there isn't security uh, with it, you know, you can walk down the street and you can you can detonate an IED or you can be shot at just because of your gender, or um, you know, uh, it, for any number of uh, reasons. So, yeah, I, I really just need to needed to uh, to adjust my expectations and um, yeah, yeah, um, reassimilate into society. I can hundred percent relate. Yeah, takes a bit of time to to wind back into that. Yeah. yeah. What do you yes. think helped you become a bit more resilient over time? Um, so over time, yeah, building my resilience, yeah, no doubt, you know, what I experienced um, during MTF3, um, that certainly helped me develop my resilience. And I suppose I did mention it earlier, but it, it did teach me a lot about myself and and how I react in certain situations. And that's really good information to know. It gives you it gives you peace of mind because I know that I did, I did respond uh, when I was presented with trauma casualties. I did respond uh, based on the, the training that I'd received and I responded mm. appropriately and um, I was effective in, in my role. And so that, that gives you a level of comfort um, that basically, you know, you've been tested and you've passed yeah. um, and that you can, you know, you can face that next casualty uh, with some assurance. So I think that helps to build resilience. But, you know, in terms of building resilience, I think, I think that's been probably informed from my childhood. So, you know, growing up with 11, you know, as, you know, one of 11 children and having two um, siblings with special needs, you really did build resilience through, you know, seeing, seeing the adversity that, you know, my siblings with special needs faced from a, from on a daily perspective and, you know, helping them through that and helping my siblings and basically helping to raise my siblings, my younger siblings. Um, it does, it does build some pride and some strength of character. So yeah, I, th I think those lessons um, held me in good stead in terms of resilience and, and the deployments that I've faced. Yeah. And of course, you've done a bunch of stuff since Afghanistan. You deployed again to Fiji in 2016 in an AME role. Yes. After the tropical cyclone tore through the country. What was that like and what did you do over there? Yeah, severe tropical cyclone Winston, yeah, in 2016 was in Fiji and, um, you know, there were a number of deaths and, uh, you know, when we arrived, the, I'd only seen like the tourist side of Fiji, um, like um, Nandi yeah. and, uh, you know, been to a resort there after when I returned from Afghanistan. And whereas now, you know, I was on, on the other side, I was, uh, you know, initially landed in Suva and we were um, based at the airfield at um, 
at now sorry uh, and it was it was difficult i mean it, we were in a, an abandoned hangar that was leaking one morning i woke up and there was a stray cat next to me like you know it was it was um it was very different from the results on the other side of the, of the island. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was, yeah, the, and, of course, there was a lot of devastation from the cyclone, um, just the, the ferocity of it and, you know, infrastructure had been obliterated, um, a lot of uh, houses and schools and buildings and uh, just basic infrastructure had um, been destroyed. So it was a huge uh, humanitarian mission uh, to to deliver uh, NGO um, supplies out to uh, many of the remote islands to help to help the communities rebuild. Um, so mm. yeah, it was it was a big scene to to uh, to fly into. And did you, Amy, any local casualties during that time? Oh yes. Sorry, that was the question. <laughs> um, so yeah, we did. So um, I was I was this, a sergeant AME medic, um, and we were working in our MRH ninety yeah. um, platforms. And you know, we talked earlier about you know when I was at Oki, did I have any AME casualties? And the answer was no, because fortunately we didn't have any accidents at that time. But now on deployment, um, we did. I, I had um, a, a very unwell uh, local national who had been uh, free diving and he was on one of the remote islands, which was actually 90 minutes. It was a 90 minute wow. flight um, out in, uh, you know, via rotary wing to retrieve this casualty and bring him back to Suva where the where there was a role to uh, local uh, hospital, which was the uh, War Memorial Hospital. So. He essentially had a decompression illness. Mm. He had the bends, and when we got there, he was combative, and he was handed over to us by New Zealand Defence Force medics that were, were actually on that island at the time, and we'd been called there to retrieve a New Zealand Defence Force member who'd sustained an eye injury whilst uh, whilst playing a social game of, of rugby, and and it was only during that retrieval it was opportune that they would. Uh, hand over this casualty to us who was rapidly deteriorating um, and who had presented with this decompression illness. So, yeah, we we, um, we treated him. I had, it was myself and, and an MO in the back of um, the MRH90 and um, we, we worked very hard um, for 90 minutes um, to stabilise this casualty and our other medic was in the front with this um, eye-injured um, New Zealand Defence Force patient. Mm. So... Yeah, what, what, certainly the call that you get to do an AME doesn't necessarily mean it's what you're going to um, be yeah. confronted with when you land. Um, so, yeah, we, we certainly um, had to had to dissect the team quickly. And, yeah, it, it, we, we stabilised him. So he, he actually stopped breathing um, during flight. Um, we we stabilised him. Uh, we got him. We transferred him. To, and he went uh, to Suva. They did have a hyperbaric mm. chamber uh, at the hospital in Suva. And a, a few days later, we got to go and see him and he was um, recovering on the ward. So it was it was really good, really good outcome uh, for that young man. Yeah, especially on those HA jobs, you just don't know. It's going to be a pregnant woman, it's going to be a child, it's going to be trauma, it's going to be medical. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just got to be ready for everything, hey? Yes. Wow. And I'm assuming you're flying yes. fairly low. <laughs> and fast on the way back so that you're not giving him more altitude. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. 
it was hard <laughs> but we got yeah through it. yeah and then moving forward again the following year 2017 you deployed to iraq as the csm task group taji health team what were the key challenges and opportunities for you on that trip i suppose for this trip and and uh, i go you know refer back to my experiences in afghanistan this this was a very different deployment mm. we certainly didn't have the volume of casualties and you know we had a very different facility that we were working out of at taji and uh, you know we had a role one echo this time we you know we we had the us there and they had a, a clinic but essentially our team was running the role one and the trauma side you know, we had, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say challenges. I would say we, we had some opportunities in terms of team dynamics because we had our different, uh, uh, you know, partner forces with us. So, you know, the makeup of our team, we didn't just have Australian clinicians as part of this team. Um, we had Singaporeans who, who were running our trauma bay and um, we had our New Zealand Defence mm. Force medics and, and nurses and doctors uh, that were there also providing treatment and, and fulfilling those key roles within the, the Role One Echo. So it was about, yeah, understanding both those cultures and, and making sure that um, we had good team cohesion going into that. Um, so certainly pre-deployment training and all those activities that we do before we deploy were, were key um, to, to building that team cohesion. and. Yeah, and also you're managing expectations, I suppose. You know, you have young medics deploying mm. on these trips and they've heard stories about, you know, how busy we were in, in Afghanistan and, and how difficult it was and how much trauma there was. Whereas on this particular rotation um, to Iraq, it, we didn't have that volume. So we still had some, you know, some challenging trauma casualties, no doubt, and we did some good things, but certainly not to the level that we had in Afghanistan. Yeah. And it's just so variable. Like those guys then who come after when ISIS were really close by and, you know, they were dropping mortars out of um, drones on, over the base all the time and there was lots of IDF and then there were sf medics up in mosul doing a heap of trauma there so it it's just a reminder of how varied it is depending where you are and what happens during your rotation but yeah i found yes uh, afghanistan say, like very similar to you like lots of acute traumatic injuries and then iraq gave me exposure through that mentoring side to those chronic effects of war which i thought was really interesting you know just yeah, people that hadn't perhaps had great, great initial resus or care after, say, the Battle of Mosul and, you know, there were guys with really horrific keloid scarring from IED burns all over the face and the body and people walking in with to that um, Iraqi clinic with external fixators that had been on for yes. months and their legs were all infected and yes. grafting over those gunshot yeah. wounds and... Yeah, just it makes you realise how lucky we are in, in what we have here in terms of treatment and, yeah, and, and as you said, just completely different experience, yeah. Oh, most definitely. And I, I think one of the key highlights for that trip was um, the opportunity to be able to go out and, and work at the um, at the Iraqi yeah. medical clinic and, um, you know, our team had built such a good rapport with the team out there that we're doing... Uh, their best uh, with the very, very limited uh, resources that they had. 
And I remember going out there and the, the Iraqi pharmacist complaining to me about, you know, basically looking at the shelves mm. and saying, look, the shelves are bare, the cupboards are bare, what the hell are we meant to be doing with these patients? And it didn't stop the flow of patients. They had that many coming in every day, some, you know, sometimes some very, very sick. Yeah, like 50 people lined up. Yes, yeah, lined up. It was, it was, you know, like third world. And we, we could only do the best we could. Um, you know, we'd often, you know, take, take stores out there and, and, and try and do what we could. But knowing that there would be no follow-up treatment or very minimal follow-up treatment and, and you don't want to create a false expectation or, or do something that when we leave cannot be replicated. So um, it, it's, it's a, very, um, a very tricky line and we, we don't want it. Certainly we want to avoid creating a dependency on, on our forces and our, our medical um, uh, intervention and our supplies, I suppose. Um, but by the same token, as clinicians, you want to help. We're told that we, of course, we want to improve the outcome for this patient and so it was it was yeah. it was quite heart-wrenching often yeah. I found. those ethical yeah. challenges are a, a lot more pronounced within the medical rules of eligibility and who gets what and doesn't always seem fair but you've just got to suck it up and and do the best yes. you can with what you're allowed to do yes and 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 understanding i think as a junior medic um, it was harder for me to mm. understand the, the rules of eligibility, but it's it's not been until later and I've really understood, you know, what the implications are from a strategic level when, you know, when we do intervene. And I think it, it very much also comes down to we, mm. we don't want to create that dependency on us being there because we're there in an instant and we're often gone in an instant as well. So it, in order to maintain relationships, we need to we need to provide help that can be sustained. Yeah. Um, and the best way that, that I've found over deployments is, is through teaching and mentoring the, the clinicians that are there on the ground. So the, the Iraqi clinicians, showing them what to do, showing them inexpensive interventions um, that they can replicate um, with the limited resources that they have. Yeah, you definitely don't want to uh, try and implement a first world health system in a third world country. Yes, uh, it's just not going to work, Absolutely. and you can do harm. You can, I think, that needs to be remembered too. You can do yes. harm by gifting ridiculous things that then can't be yes. maintained, or fancy equipment that people don't know how to use will do more harm than good. You know, it's the yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I was just going to say the other opportunity that I had um, in Taji, which which I really enjoyed, was you know, and I, I said then that the, I think that the greatest impact that we can have when we go to these areas is is through mentoring the local clinicians and and assisting them. You know, often they 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 are brilliant at what mm. they do because they've been uh, having to do their job with with next to no uh, you know equipment or supplies or you know. Uh, a, um, a reliable source of supplies. Sometimes they'll get supplies and then they won't get a re, re, um, reinforcement of those for, you know, over 12 months. So um, they are incredibly resourceful people. But we we got to train 
the Iraqi forces in first aid, in combat first aid. And um, we did that, yeah, at those that were training to be part of the special forces in the Iraqi Defence Force. So it was really good to be able to impart some combat first aid skills and know that these interventions you know, potentially we're, we're going to save a life. And these these people were, were being trained in special forces and going out to, you know, a battle very quickly. They were they were going straight into, um, you know, uh, kinetic operations yeah. as soon as they had finished their training. Um, so we, we did things like advise tourniquets. You know, of course, we learned these things in, in Afghanistan, but you know, the, the Afghanis were, were incredible in, or incredibly resourceful in creating tourniquets out of whatever they could find. I mean, we have these fancy uh, combat application tourniquets that, you know, very effective, but of course, these populations often don't have access to these things. So we would teach the Iraqi um, special forces uh, trainees, candidates, how to create tourniquets and you know, using using a piece of material, and then grabbing um, the top of a water bottle, like the little ring that's around the the top of a water bottle, which there are obviously water bottles everywhere. Grabbing that and using that to uh, grabbing a stick, and then uh, creating the the tourniquet, and then use the end of the, um, the the ring from the water bottle to stabilize the stick, and it, you just thread it through the through the material, and they. Yeah, I'm hoping that those techniques um, were used and and could help um, stabilise casualties. While we were over there, you decided you were going to ASWOC and become a general service officer. What was the the motivation for that change from being a medic with all that experience to come in and then be an officer and be involved in that command and uh, the decision-making side I guess rather than go for say an RSM role or something else yeah yeah good question I um I decided before before deploying so I in the March before deploying so I think we we deployed towards the end of 2017 first of March 2017 I went down to Canberra and I um, sat my officer selection board and passed was recommended uh, for commission but of course it's very difficult to deploy as a CSM when you're not a war warrant officer. So my commission was delayed until the end of the deployment. Um, so I commissioned, mm. yeah, before just before we left Taji um, in June of 2018. So my decision to, to transfer, I suppose, was to provide me with more opportunities from that command leadership and management perspective. So I suppose over the years, you know, commanders have sought my my counsel, my guidance on, you know, which direction to go to inform a decision. And I'd like to think that I've provided sound advice over the years. And I've often watched the direction of those decisions. And in most cases, the commander followed my advice. So I deducted that perhaps um, I was giving good advice or sound advice and that perhaps I could be the one making the decisions and or more command decisions and um, and could influence the organisation in a positive way, particularly from a health service perspective. And my, my biggest driver or biggest motivation is the, the care that we give to our soldiers and the way we manage our soldiers, um, we must do that with compassion and with respect. And I thought that 
that I would be a good person to do that. So um, that's why I commissioned and I, I stayed as a medical corps officer, but um, general service officer. Yeah. Has that been hard to step away from uh, any kind of clinical role and um, be purely, yeah, in the it, command space? Or? Yeah, it, it has, yeah. although... I continued um, with my nursing studies and I, um, I completed a Bachelor of Nursing at the end of 2021. So I was able to kind of still continue with some tertiary study and still go on clinical placements. And I, I did my final clinical placement at, at a busy public hospital on the Gold Coast um, in Queensland. And um, so I was kind of still doing some clinical uh, work while I made that transition from OR to, to officer. So yeah it, it was good and and now in my role as a general service officer i find i'm drawn to the health and well-being or the the welfare space that we have uh, within army and and how how we we take care of our soldiers and our officers from from a holistic holistic perspe- perspective um through our wounded injured and ill program and i'm i've been a welfare officer in many of my roles as a as a general service officer so whilst i was an adjutant i was the unit welfare officer and you know took great pride in in managing these cases and um, seeking positive outcomes through a lens of compassion uh, for their circumstances and for that individual and their family and you know as a as a company to rc um, and in my current role um, Again, I've taken on uh, the welfare officer perspective um, or the welfare officer role, and I've been able to assist some soldiers and officers in in that respect. So um, Mm. whilst it's not a direct clinical role, I still like to think that I'm using many of the things and many of the lessons and identifying symptoms in, in people whereby I think I've had some positive impact in, um, yeah, in connecting them with the services that they, they need. Yeah. You'd be awesome at that, Bernie. <laughs> um, oh, thank you. Thank you. And then, of course, from 2019 onwards, the ADF really took on an increasing role in domestic support to natural disasters. We did a lot of assistance around COVID and then, of course, the massive bushfire assistance operation. And I know you were involved in, in those ops as a health planner. What did you do in those jobs? Sure. And yeah, okay. tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, very much so our, our focus uh, as a defence force um, shifted to domestic operations and our assistance to communities uh, through pandemic, floods, fires, you know, lots of natural disaster, um, you know, uh, that, that we've had to cope with uh, as a nation in recent years. So my my role for bushfire assist was that actually I deployed as the officer commanding of a combat service support team over to Kangaroo Island, um, mm. which is off the coast of South Australia. If you don't know Kangaroo Island, it's actually got a, the, the, the coastline is 500 kilometres. So it's it's actually the second largest island like off mainland australia so uh, you know incredibly close-knit community on kangaroo island and more than half of the island was decimated by bushfire and that was at the start Mm. of uh, 2020 yeah end end and start of uh, end 2019 started 2020 so we deployed 
um, in January of 2020. I think I got back at the start of March. So we were there and we were based out of a football, like just adjacent to a football club, Pandana um, Football Club. And yeah, I've, I had the opportunity, thank you to my boss, um, to be uh, officer commanding. So it was a big challenge noting that I'd only commissioned, uh, well, a couple of years prior. Um, it was it was an opportunity for me to put my my new officer training into into practice, and yeah, we, we delivered. So so part of our role was to basically uh, help the locals clear livestock that had perished uh, in the fires, help to you know remove old water tanks that had been, you know obviously that had been destroyed deliver fodder for livestock that had survived, um, deliver water, refill dams, refill water tanks, uh, basically assistance to the civilian population there, whatever they required. Um, one of the things that I was very proud of from, from an organisational perspective was that the water treatment plant had been damaged in the fires and our um, environmental health team and our engineers went in and repaired the water treatment plant, which actually restored clean drinking water to the island. So we, we did some, some, really th some things that Australians can be really proud of on Kangaroo Island and, and of course, in, in many other locations around Australia, because at that time, I think much of the East Coast was on fire and yeah, Kangaroo Island and there were certainly uh, many um, blazes in the Adelaide Hills uh, that that we provided assistance to as well but oh, I was just going to say everyone sort of pays off environmental health as not being super important until they haven't got clean drinking water and until they yes. <laughs> have all got malaria or there's an issue you know <laughs> and then they are they're, they're a godsend yes. aren't they oh. they're just doing incredible work uh, yeah along with the engineers yeah Absolutely. They had like a, I believe from memory, it was a, like a desalination treatment plant there and um, which supplied much of the, the island's drinking water and uh, yeah, just, just crucial infrastructure that had been damaged in the fires. And, you know, our engineers did incredible work to repair that facility and um, our environmental health teams, officer and, and um, you know, technician that, that went in there and would go in and do, you know, sampling of the water and um, you know, testing of the water to ensure um, that it was safe uh, for the population. But, yeah, so some really great work was done. We assisted in, yeah, clearing properties, um, helping uh, the population to, to go back onto their properties um, once, the, once the fire obviously had, had cleared. And in many cases, it was really, really um, confronting to see the, the fire was was so so big. The the enormity of the fire was so so great that um, in many cases it just the blaze continued until it hit the ocean. So it, mm. it just it, you know the entire landscape um, was charred. And yeah, I, I've I've not seen uh, that sort of devastation from from a bushfire. It was extensive. In terms of service. You know, we would be in the, you know, the, the township of, um, uh, you know, the, the main township within Kangaroo Island and locals would stop us on the street and say, when we saw your vehicles roll in and when we saw your uniform, we felt safe. Mm, yeah That's pretty cool was, to be able yeah. to help in your own, in your own country. Often we're so yeah. um, internationally focused on what the government um, require of us. It's 
it's pretty cool yes. to be out there going in be in your own backyard yeah yes yeah. and and that's yeah absolutely and my experiences up until that time from from an operational perspective had been overseas and and this time it was uh, Australian forces helping Australians and and we we partnered with you know non-government non-government agencies there was a, an agency called blaze aid which provides assistance these are civilians they provide assistance where there's a fire and and they help the community they often do a lot of fencing uh, you know around the properties uh, yeah repairing fencing posts things like that signage as what, whatever's needed um, and we, we lived alongside laser volunteers and you know, we, we worked with the, the fire serve, the rural fire, fire service on the island. We worked with the state government organisation that was there from Department of Housing, um, South Australia Department of Housing, um, that were assisting the locals, um, providing temporary accommodation, you know, because, you know, many of them had, had lost their homes, lost their livelihoods. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a joint effort. You know, we also partnered with uh, SA Police and, you know, many you know, local government. We had a very close working relationship with the mayor and we it really was about team cohesion and understanding what we could bring and what was within our remit when we would receive a request from, from the, the local population, how we would prioritise those requests and... Um, and then how we would, would go about, you know, apportioning our resources to, to have the, the greatest impact um, to assist the local community. Awesome work. What would you say your biggest challenge has been over the years, personally or professionally, and how did you overcome it? Oh, that's a great question, Em. Greatest challenge... Uh, this <laughs> this might not be one that's very popular, um, but um, or perhaps a little controversial. But I would say uh, respect. So I had the privilege of meeting our current Governor General last year, and and uh, yeah, Sir, um, you know, former former Army uh, General and uh, David Hurley, and he mm. brought in the defence value of respect. So that, that happened during during my uh, junior years as a medic and it has changed, I believe, has been uh, um, the catalyst for cultural change within Army and within the Defence Force more broadly because it is now a Defence Force value that we have uh, respect uh, at the very heart of what we do. So, you know, it's it, of, of course, uh, it's a very high number of, of male members within the defence force and particularly within army and that has shifted in recent years and we have recruiting uh, targets um, to to increase the numbers of of, of other um, genders and i just yeah respect it comes down to respect and and we treat others with dignity and respect and that is something that that has been instilled in me from my parents and my upbringing and that's something um, that is hopefully my legacy and, and what I, my goal in, in every interaction that I have, whether it's, you know, with a peer, with a superior, with a subordinate, um, I don't care if you're a recruit or you're the chief of army, um, I will treat you with dignity and respect and I expect the same in return. This is probably a controversial question, but do you feel like because you're female in some of those command roles over the years, respect 
was at times lacking? I think I think over the years, I think sometimes people have, I'm going to refer to as a, potentially a deep-seated gender bias or, you know, an unconscious bias. Perhaps it's, you know, it's been the way they're raised or, you know, societal norms or, or whatever it might be. They're not used to seeing or perhaps their experience has been that they've not seen a female in uniform before. They've not had a boss who was female in uniform. And sometimes they just, uh, sometimes they can just be clumsy in, in the way that they interact or things that they say that are actually really inappropriate. So again, I just take it back to, to, to let's, let's just be decent humans and let's treat each other with dignity and respect and, the only discriminator is character, in my view. So, um, if you're of good if you're of good character and you're competent in your in your job, then guess what you you get my respect every day, and and yeah. So so I think yeah, I think I think it's my challenge over the years. My greatest challenge has, has been trying to shift that bias and and challenge people that if they're being disrespectful you know having the courage to to actually present that to them and say hey um you you may not realize but that's actually not okay and uh, sometimes people aren't even aware of what they're doing Uh, it just needs to be brought to their attention and you know it's an unconscious bias for a reason right so um yeah yeah, I think it, it belies us to to highlight yeah where, where people fall short or where things could be could be improved and it is about inclusion and you know we're a much stronger force for our di- diversity and our inclusion um, than I believe mm. we've been you know in 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 former decades so I, I think it can only get better. It's interesting you say that. Like I got invited to go to one of those women in defence seminars a few years back, but it was being hosted by a civilian professional and I just thought I've had like a good dozen female commanders that have just been complete jets. I don't need to hear it from anyone else. I've got examples (laughs) around me left, right and centre. And maybe, I mean, and I've worked outside of health as well where, where there are a lot less women in, you know, infantry units, et cetera. But, yeah, like everyone's got a role to play as long as you're good at the job. Uh, yes. Whatever. Should there be a non-issue in lots of respect, in lots of ways, yeah. It, it should be, but unfortunately we, we still have a way to go. And, yeah, the, it's funny that you mentioned that, yeah, Women in Defence Conference, and that's evolved over recent years and I've, I've had um, the privilege of attending for the last three years. And this year there were lots of, uh, you know, very accomplished um, female commanders or commanders that happened to be female mm. from a tri-service perspective. But we also had a, a, a general, uh, lieutenant general actually, that, that presented, a male lieutenant general that presented. And it was really good to hear from someone who champions women in defence and who he described he has an active bias uh, toward, uh, you know, promoting women and uh, diversity and inclusion in defence. So it, it was really refreshing. And, um, yeah, it's, I would uh, recommend it not just to women but mm. to, to anyone in defence to, 
you know, if you if you do have the opportunity to attend a conference like this, please do. Um, and I challenge you to broaden your worldview. Yeah. I've, I've never been a fan of quotas personally because I feel that then there's a speculation that you might not have got the job on your merit. So I feel like it should yes. always be best, you know, best person for the job and then you, you should just take the rest of it away <laughs> you know yes. like yeah 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 we're still got a way to go i think i think I, I don't like the concept of quotas either but through these conferences i've i've heard you know many op opinions and um on this and uh, what did resonate with me was was the the term you can't be what you can't see so unless we have a first female prime minister unless we have a first you know, CEO of a company that is female, then how do we have that tailored mentorship yeah. for young women and, and girls? And how do we, how do they aspire? And, and how do we recruit to those roles when we're recruiting often uh, to, to the male population? Because the people that are, that are uh, sitting on the board and sitting on that panel, that selection panel are all male. So, so they're going to, to view the candidates through a lens of, you know, this is the criteria because, you know, I see that I've stepped through these hoops and these are the, the characteristics that yeah. I brought. But, you know, a female candidate's often going to bring very different characteristics and ex experiences and expertise to that role. So I think sometimes we need to, to be inclusive and create those opportunities. Um, so, you know, I mean, we could do that through a variety of ways, but um, sometimes we need to yeah, just just in, improve or, or broaden the lens, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the practical aspects, you know, at the end of the day, women do have the babies and um, that's yes. biologically what we are, are you know, <laughs> able to do. So that means that there's going to be career breaks yes. while that happens. And, yeah, and defence has historically been set up for, you know, one parent that that can go away at the drop of a hat at any point and and the other not <laughs> so yeah we if we could support our families in having like on base childcare and ability to take you know your kids to preschool while you're at work or you're on a career course or and you could look after them at night that would probably do more than any seminar or conference yeah um, <laughs> or quota Indeed. that's just my opinion just Indeed. a way of ticking yes. along so you yes. can you can do both yeah anyway, absolutely it opened up pandora's box there haven't we <laughs> <laughs> yes it, it it does inform um you know policy reform and things like that which is so important and i, I completely understand and, and and agree with what you're saying there yeah. um yeah yeah last one and um Last question, what advice would you give a medic who perhaps wants to make that jump over to GSO? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> well, it needs to be the right time in your life. So, uh, you know, for me, my daughter's in year 12. She's, you know, she's about to go to university. And so making the transition as she was in, sort of mid to you know well mid high school I suppose or senior high school it has it has suited you know my, my life at this time to to make the transition so I would say make sure you've accomplished 
all those things that you want to accomplish as a clinician and as a medic before you make the transfer. So I was in the fortunate position that um, I wanted one more operational deployment. I wanted to be promoted to, to warrant officer and I accomplished those things and then I felt ready to yeah, to, to increase my sphere of influence by by commissioning and, and I, I don't regret it. Whilst my workload has increased exponentially and I've, I can now understand just how difficult I would have been to manage as a, as a soldier, um, I, you know, I would have been a handful but I, I've really enjoyed the challenge of, of transferring. So I... I would say to, to any medics, you know, once you've done all those clinical things and had all those clinical experiences, um, if you want to take a, a role or a path that is uh, command and leadership and management, you know, has has that at its core, um, then then I would absolutely recommend it to you. And yeah, there there are so many different areas that you can go into. It really does open up a whole another raft of opportunities um, and from a career perspective and from a longevity and defence perspective, I think it's a good option. Thank you, Bernie, for your leadership and for sharing your story and also your vulnerabilities on the podcast. You've had an incredible career from, you know, AME time with SASR, which we didn't even talk about, to your operational experience and I think it's really important that other clinicians know they're not alone in a lot of this stuff and your story really highlights that. And thank you for your continuing service. Oh, thanks, Em. And as I said at the start, it is an honour um, to be asked to, to share my, my experiences and, you know, I, it was difficult and um, so apologies for the pauses throughout and you know, to get a bit choked up there, but these, these memories are confronting and difficult to access so that was the reason for that um and yeah it, it is an honor to be able to serve um, this great nation I am I'm, I feel very privileged to be an Australian and 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 to continue to serve uh, the organization um, which I love <laughs>